0: thank you very much for joining us here today at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you especially uh, to everyone in the audience for making it out in this fantastic D.C. weather. I, I have to admit that when I woke up this morning and looked outside, my heart sank just a little bit because I know that nothing cuts attendance at a talk like a really driving D.C. rainstorm. So thanks very much to everyone. Uh, a hearty band here, more than a band, I think, of folks who came out for today's talk. Uh, I'm Dr. Ted Broman, Senior Research Fellow in the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom here at the Heritage Foundation. Almost exactly two years ago today, I I looked it up, it was sort of two years ago, plus or minus a day, I think, we welcome today's speaker to Heritage to speak on his first book, The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy, Mikhail Gorbachev and the Collapse of the USSR. Um, and uh, our speaker is a real Stakhanovite, uh, which is a reference that I think he might appreciate. And he's managed to publish a second book in a matter of about 18 months, uh, which is, is a fantastic achievement of scholarly productivity. In his first book, our speaker argued that the difference between the USSR and the People's Republic of China was that the USSR was politically divided internally and that Gorbachev was unable to outmaneuver the interest groups that were threatened by his reforms. So the USSR was unquestionably very inefficient, but that inefficiency stabilized the Soviet system by benefiting its elites. And in the end, it proved easier to change the Soviet leadership, i.e. Mikhail Gorbachev, than to loosen that elite control. Now, of course, today and over the past several years, the relationship between the Russian economy and the Russian political leadership, in other words, Vladimir Putin, has continued to be both important and controversial. There is, I think, fairly widespread agreement that whatever else Vladimir Putin and uh, Dmitry Medvedev have done, they have not really modernized the Russian economy. Uh, There's also, I think, fairly widespread acknowledgement that Putin has forged a new and, in our terms, a highly corrupt relationship with Russia's economic elites, symbolized, of course, by the Yukos affair. But there's less agreement on what this relationship means. Some observers see Putin as little more than an economic gangster on a grand scale, viewing him as interested in ideology and politics only for instrumental reasons. He's in it for the money, in other words. Others see him precisely the opposite way, as a national leader with a profoundly ideological vision who reigned in Russia's economic elites in pursuit of that vision. In the background of this debate, of course, is the question that our guest examined in his first book, Is the Russian political system a mechanism for change or an obstacle to it? And more broadly, is today's Russia headed for the same collapse as the one that engulfed Gorbachev's Russia? Or has Putin's economic strategy, in spite of its flaws, been politically functional and successful? Dr. Miller is assistant professor of international history at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. He received his Ph.D. and M.A. from Yale University and was, for a time, a graduate school colleague of mine, so it's always a pleasure to see him, Uh, also received his B.A. in history from Harvard. Dr. Miller previously served as associate director of the Brady-Johnson Program and Grant Strategy at Yale. He was a lecturer at the New Economic School in Moscow, a visiting researcher at the Carnegie Moscow Center, a research associate at Brookings, and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund's Transatlantic Academy. His first book on the USSR's collapse was published in 2016. And I'm very glad to welcome him back to the Heritage Foundation to speak in a second book published in March 2018 by UNC Press, "Putinomics: Power and Money in Resurgent Russia. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Chris Miller. Chris.
1: Well, thank you very much, uh, Ted, for that very kind introduction, and I think uh, set the stage well for uh, why understanding Russian economic policy is so important today. I know that Russia's in the news very much and a subject of conversation in Washington, the Mueller report, things like that. But I'd actually like to ask you to take your attention away from the Washington debate for just an hour or so and focus it instead on Russia itself, Um, because I think it's important to understand what's actually happening in Russia if you want to understand Russian domestic politics in Russian foreign policy. And I think it's undeniable that these are two very important subjects for the United States today as it engages with Russia on a whole range of different issues uh, in its foreign policy. And what I'd like to do to start is to set out what I think is a a puzzle or a dilemma in Russian politics that we haven't fully reckoned with, uh, and that shapes, I'd like to suggest, our understanding of how Putin has governed over the past nearly two decades since he came to power, and also how he might govern uh, over the remainder of his current presidential term, uh, which he was just reelected to uh, last year with an overwhelming share of the vote. And you can imagine how he got that uh, expansive share of the vote, uh, given, his, uh, given his electoral tools that he's able to use. But let me begin by setting out the dilemma, uh, which, which, uh, which I think uh, is crucially important for understanding Russia. And the dilemma is this. This is the image uh that we're used to seeing of Vladimir Putin. He's walking shirtless through Siberia hunting bears. He's a macho man. Uh Ted mentioned the, the gangster image that many Western accounts have of Putin. We also have the Putin as former KGB agent, a sort of spy, James Bond-esque, but the James Bond villain maybe, uh always with a always with a firearm in hand. And there's a lot of reasons why you might adopt these images and there's some truth in, in all of these different descriptions of Putin personally and the Russian elite more generally. It's certainly true, for example, that uh, there are many uh, former or current members of the KGB at the upper echelons of Russian politics, both in the Kremlin, regional governors running state-owned companies. It's also certainly true there's a fair amount of corruption in the Russian elite, uh, stealing money from the state budget. But this has occurred amidst an economic system that has been remarkably stable And I would submit to you that if you were to imagine, uh, pick your metaphor, gangsters or KGB agents running an economy, you might not presume that stability would be the result. But in fact, that's been uh, the experience of Russian economic policy for the past two decades amid rises and fall in oil prices, amid great economic shocks, amid Western economic sanctions. Nonetheless, Russia's managed to run an economic policy that has provided Putin the stability he needs to retain power. And that, I think, is something of a puzzle. What are the principles that underlay that, and to what extent are they durable going forward? And so I've, as Ted mentioned over the course of research for this book, interviewed uh, many people in Russia and studied the policies that Russia has implemented over the past 20 years since Putin uh, first came to power at the turn of the millennium. And what I'd like to do is propose three pillars of Putinomics, uh, the economic policies that have underlay his rule. The, The first pillar, as I alluded to earlier, is sound macroeconomic management. It might surprise you to hear that every year when the International Monetary Fund issues its report on Russian macroeconomic policy, Russia gets very high marks year after year. The IMF says Russia is doing a great job on fiscal policy and monetary policy. And this has been a constant over Putin's two decades in power. The second pillar, which has been in case up until last year and might now be changing, is uh, it focus on certain types of social spending. Like many politicians, uh, Putin and the, uh, the Russian elite face pressure from the population to give them things they want, and the Russian government has been very adept in using social spending to buy support from influential groups, and above all in Russia, that means pensioners. Just as Americans are focused on Social Security, just as all across the world people are concerned about their retirement, so too in Russia, people are focused on pensions. And up until last year, Russia's government under Putin paid out a lot of money in pensions. It increased pensions almost every year of Putin's time in power, and this won Putin an enduring base of support among Russian uh, older voters. And the, the third principle of Putinomics, which I'd like to set out, is, I think, an important one, especially for an American audience to realize it's the crucial difference between the Soviet experience and Russia today. We often hear in the media uh, claims that Putin is trying to rebuild the Soviet empire, and there's an element of truth to that. But I think there's a crucial difference in the way the Soviet economy was managed and the way Russia's economy is managed today. And that's that in the Soviet period, almost everything was controlled from the center. Prices for bread and milk were controlled by a central bureaucracy in Moscow. They set production targets for almost every enterprise. Uh, In theory, Moscow was trying to control everything. And today's Russia is rather different. There are only a couple of industries, the key strategically and politically important industries that are controlled from the center, and everything else is kind of left alone. There's not a good business environment, but the government just basically ignores it. So if you're in a politically crucial sector – Energy, for example, oil and gas, or the banking sector, there's a lot of government involvement. But if you're running a supermarket or a cement firm, the government just ignores you. And that's been a very effective strategy because it means that Russia today doesn't face many of the problems that the Soviet Union faced, an excessive bureaucracy that's trying to control everything. The Kremlin has been able to prioritize controlling the politically important industries while leaving the politically unimportant ones to the side. And as a result, it's been more effective in achieving its political and economic goals. the, The combination of these three pillars has let Russia survive the past five years of what I would argue is a pretty incredible economic shock Russia. And that shock uh, took – there were a number of different factors that drove in that, – that created that shock. The first was in 2014, oil prices crashed, falling from above $100 a barrel to uh, almost a third of that level um, by 2015. And of course, Russia, uh, its main exports are oil and natural gas, and many of Russia's natural gas contracts at the time were tied to oil prices. So when oil prices fall, Russia takes a huge hit. Both Russia's government budget, where depending upon the year, around half of revenue comes from taxing oil and gas, and Russia's exports are dominated by oil and gas. So whenever oil prices fall, Russia's economy suffers. And that happened in a very serious way in 2014, putting a lot of pressure on Russia's economy. So the oil shock was the first key shock that happened in 2014. At the same time, 2014 also was the year that the war in Ukraine began. Russia annexed Crimea in spring 2014, and then over the course of summer and fall 2014, began fomenting a anti-government uh, insurgency and deploying uh, military forces to the Donbas region of eastern Ukraine. And in response, Western countries – the U.S., the European Union, and others – levied surprisingly tough economic sanctions on Russia, sanctions that limited the ability of many large Russian firms to uh, issue debtor equity in Western capital markets and sanctioned individuals um, from doing any sort of business. In the West. These were sanctions that were uh, far stronger than any sanctions that independent Russia had ever experienced, and really some of the strongest sanctions that the US had imposed in recent years, with the exception of Iran and North Korea. So, again, a major shock to the Russian system, especially considering how integrated Russian firms were with international capital markets before this point. And this happened at the exact same time that oil prices were crashing. So Russia's main export was falling in price, and Russian firms were being locked out of Western capital markets, and they remain locked out to this day. And these two shocks in 2014 occurred uh, amid a business climate in Russia, which, as everyone knows, is far from conducive uh, to investment. Uh, you can list any number of Russian business people who have been jailed or have had assets sto- stolen from them for political reasons. The, the most recent high-profile cases of uh, this man right here, Vladimir uh, who had a, a firm stolen from him uh, several years ago, reducing his net worth by several billion dollars uh, in, in one fell swoop. And Cases like this have, over the past two decades or three decades, discouraged both foreigners and Russians from investing in Russia because they're understandably afraid of the security of their assets. So many of Russia's elite hold as much of their money as they can abroad in Switzerland or in London. And this has had a long-term effect in deterring investment in Russia and thereby reducing productivity increases and reducing long-run economic growth. So you've had this background of bad business climate coupled with two big shocks in 2014 – But nonetheless, not much has changed domestically. Putin hasn't faced much pressure. The Russian economy fairly quickly stabilized. uh, And although Russians have had a painful five years in terms of declining incomes, no one's blamed Putin for that. No one's protesting. There's been hardly any visible domestic political discontent. Putin still wins elections, obviously elections that are very carefully sculpted to make sure he's the only credible candidate. Uh, public opinion polls suggest that he's still by far the most popular uh, politician in Russia, and there have been almost no substantive protests against Putin. So I would argue, from his perspective, with the goal of staying in power, his economic strategy has been relatively effective, and I would ar- argue, surprisingly effective compared to what many American analysts expected in 2014 as they watched the oil price tumble and as they watched the United States and Europe impose such sanctions on Russia. So the question is, well, why was this so easy? Why was it so easy for Putin to survive these shocks, Western pressure, declining oil prices, without having to make any changes? Russian foreign policy is unchanged since 2014. Russia is still controlling Crimea. It's still deploying forces in eastern Ukraine. It's begun a new war in Syria. It's still fighting there to this day. And Russian foreign policy looks unaffected by the economic pressure that's been imposed on it from the outside. And domestically, too, Putin's had to make no major concessions to any sort of opposition groups to retain power. He's faced very little pressure to change his ways. So let me try to sketch out to you the the ways that the macroeconomic policies that the Russian government has implemented over the past uh, two decades and continues to implement to this day have made things relatively easy for the Kremlin to adjust to economic shocks, and there's an important political logic that underlies all of this, which is that in Russia, it's proven very easy over the past two decades to shift the cost of adjusting the shocks onto the population because the population is both unwilling to protest and is afraid of protesting that decision. So almost all of the cost of the adjustment over the past five years has been borne by the population, and the population thus far hasn't really complained. So first, if you look at the ruble-to-dollar exchange rate in 2014, not surprisingly, when oil prices fell, uh, Russia's currency fell, right along with it, you can see it crashing in 2014 and then again in 2015, uh, which had a very drastic effect on Russians' incomes because Russians buy many goods from abroad that are denominated in dollars. And so when the ruble is devalued against the dollar, it becomes more expensive to buy goods from abroad. But from the Russian government's perspective, Devaluation was a very effective maneuver because Russia's government's goal was not protecting household incomes. It correctly bet that household incomes didn't really matter from the perspective of the government. Its goal was to make sure the government's budget was roughly balanced, that the government had room for maneuver in case it needed to spend more, for example, on a war in Syria, or spend more in case, for example, it had to deal with new sanctions. And so when the ruble collapsed, it actually provided a benefit for Russia's government because if you look at the uh price of oil denominated in rubles which is the uh which is the metric that actually matters to the Russian government that was relatively stable over the course of uh over the course of the years following the 2014 shocks and what that meant for Russia was that the number of rubles coming into the Russian government budget was also stable and Russia's government pays almost all of its expenses in rubles salaries pensions uh, almost all of Russia's government Spending is ruble, not dollar denominated. So even at the peak of the crisis in 2014 and 2015, Russia's government was able to run only a very small budget deficit, just a couple percentage points of GDP, smaller as a share of GDP than America's government budget deficit right now, despite the fact that Russia's main export had halved in price. So a pretty substantial adjustment, and it gave the Russian government a feeling of flexibility, that it had the resources that it needed to execute the foreign policy that it wanted to act. And indeed, Russia's government was right. It's shown over the past five years that it had all the resources it needed uh, to not make any changes in terms of foreign policy or domestic politics. But the cost of the ruble devaluation, as I mentioned, was inflation. Prices went up, and consumers had to pay a lot more for the goods they wanted to buy from abroad. And because wages didn't go up anywhere nearly as rapidly as did prices, Russians got poorer in the process. So prices increased by around 12%, for example, in, uh, in, in the middle of 2014, peaking almost uh, at 15 or 16% uh, by, by the end of the year, and Russian incomes were barely rising at all that year. So Russian real wages, wages uh, adjusted for inflation, declined by over 10% between 2014 and 2015. That's a massive shock to real wages, far above the shock, for example, that Americans experienced around the 2008-2009 financial crisis, when real wages almost didn't decline. By contrast, Russian real wages declined by 10% in a year, but no one complained. Here's a chart of real wages. You can watch them falling off a cliff after 2014. And even today, this household disposable incomes, when adjusted for deflation, are still well below where they were in 2014. In fact, dispo- household disposable income has fallen every single year since 2014, including last year, with still no protest. Russians have gotten poorer every single year since 2014, and yet no one has really raised a serious voice against it. You can look at charts of Putin's approval ratings, and there's some debate as to how accurately this aff- this reflects Russians' view of Putin. Uh, certainly, you can imagine that if you lived in Russia and someone called you up and said do you trust the president, you would say, "Of course, I trust the president." Uh, but nonetheless, I think anecdotally, uh, there, there's no reason to doubt that Putin is by far the most popular politician in Russia. Now, granted, Russians aren't given uh, very many good options uh, in in that scale, but uh, it does seem to, to appear that uh, that Putin's uh, popularity has been relatively solid. It's slid in a bit in the past couple of months, but still he's far more popular, for example, than Emmanuel Macron is in France or Donald Trump is in the United States. So by comparison to other world leaders, you might say he's doing relatively well, especially since at the end of the day, elections don't matter in Russia in the same way as they do in other countries. Now, at the same time that Russia was imposing massive costs on its population via its strategy of letting inflation increase without increasing wages. It had to execute a series of massive bank bailouts uh, to help its banks adjust to the devalued uh, ruble. And, and this is kind of the interesting side story that even the Russian media has only really picked up in the very specialized financial pre- uh, press. But in fact, Putin executed an enormous bank bailout and is still in the process of executing one now, which was the direct result of the adjustment strategy that they adopted. Let the ruble collapse, that's problematic for households, but that's also problematic for Russian banks, because Russian banks had borrowed from abroad in dollars, but all of their revenue was from lending to people in rubles. And suddenly, all of their revenue was worth half as many dollars as it had previously been because the ruble collapsed. And so all the Russian banks were struggling to adjust in 2014, 2015, 2016. And so Russia's government and the central bank lent them dollars on a extraordinarily attractive rate for a very long duration at very relatively low interest rates. Uh, in effect, uh, bailing out the Russian banking sector, uh, making the the U.S. bank bailouts of uh, 2008-2009 look relatively puny uh, in comparison to the risk that the Russian government uh, took on. And you can see here a chart of uh, Russian central bank dollar lending to Russian banks. kind of incredible. In most countries, the central bank will lend to the country's banks in their own currency. In Russia, the central bank was lending dollars to Russian banks in 2014 and 2015 because it was dollars they needed to get their hands on. Huge risk that the Russian central bank was taking on, but the government realized that it would face no popular discontent for bailing out its banks. There would be no negative repercussion, no Bernie Sanders criticizing Putin for bank bailouts in the next election, and so there was no reason not to do it. This massive bank bailout took place almost unnoticed by the population. And over the past couple of years, the cost of this bank bailout has been coming due Many of the banks that were uh, bailed out by uh, f- via financial support from the central bank uh, since then uh, lent lots of money to sanctioned Russian firms, which themselves were looking for uh, new sources of funding because they could no longer find it in Western capital markets. But over the past couple of years, many of these banks, uh, newly uh, enlarged because of their central bank support, have now gone bankrupt. They lent to sanctioned firms. The firms couldn't pay them back. And so you've seen a series of bank collapses over the past couple of years in Russia, which is essentially the cost of the bailout coming due. So first, it was Atriti and Binbank, two relatively large Russian banks, which went bust last year. Then Pramsvaz Bank was taken over by the government. Uh, and, and one of the newer banks is still standing. We'll see for how long. Um, but all of these bank bailouts have involved the Russian government paying the cost of loans gone bad, And almost all of them have come with almost, again, zero public criticism. Most people don't understand how they were executed. Even if they didn't understand, Russians have no mechanism for complaining. So there's a a massive bank bailout with zero political consequences for the Russian government. And as a result, uh, they're continuing to execute similar policies, correctly betting, in my view, that they will face very few negative ramifications. And the benefit of these types of bailouts is that it keeps – big Russian firms in business. And the biggest Russian firms, the ones that were under the most pressure in the years after 2014, are state-owned firms. Firms like Rosneft, Gazprom, the large energy monopolies uh, in Russia, and also big Russian state-owned banks like Sperbank and VTB, uh, which are among the largest in the Russian market. All of these are at least partially some fully state-owned. All of them are run by people with long-time affiliations with either Putin personally or other members of the Russian elite, and all of them play political roles as well as economic roles. So the Kremlin decided it was absolutely crucial to make sure these firms stayed in business, even if it meant providing funding through the banking system via bank bailouts uh, to these firms that was uh, kind of hidden via the banks and not properly admitted to the Russian people. From the Kremlin's perspective, this was expensive, but the system worked. Their firms stayed in business. There was no domestic political backlash. And the cost was seen as a necessary part of doing business in an era of sanctions and an era of low oil prices. And what these bailouts did was that they gave Russian firms the funds to begin paying back foreign debt. Because in the 2000s, Russian firms had borrowed billions from abroad, euros and dollars mostly from Western investors. And since 2014, they've been trying to deleverage, pay back their loans, fearing further sanctions, uh, and fearing that they might lose even more access to Western capital markets. So you can see when you look at the data, uh, a big decline in the extent to which uh, Russian banks, which is the yellow part, and to a smaller extent Russian uh, non-bank corporations, which is the blue part of this graph, have repaid foreign debt, which means they're much less leveraged and much less vulnerable today than they they were in 2014 to new sanctions or to new economic shocks. So the Kremlin has made its firms more stable and less vulnerable, fearing that the U.S. Congress or uh, the White House will apply new sanctions to Russian firms. And amid these economic policies, Russia's economy has returned to, if not growth, at least stagnation, growth of 1 or 2 percent a year, um, which for Russia is, is not bad. It's interesting that none of this growth is translating into increases in household incomes. The growth is accruing to other sectors of the Russian economy households are still getting poorer, even as the economy is growing slightly. But nonetheless, for the Kremlin, this represents uh, a modest victory. The economy is no longer in recession as it was in 2015. And so it can sell this at home as a a sort of success, even if the economy is growing far more slowly than it would if there were good economic governance in place. And this has allowed uh, the government, at least until last year, to execute the second pillar of Putinomics. The government has had all the resources it needed to make sure it was able to spend on social programs and especially pensions, which are crucial, as I mentioned, to the Russian government's support. And so from 2000 to last year, Russia's government had increased pensions almost every single year. And in the 2000s in particular, pensions increased by double-digit rates in certain years, so just exceptional increases in in the amount that Russian uh, elderly citizens were getting from the state. And as I mentioned before, this provided great benefits to Putin because uh, his key voting bloc was strongly behind him. Now, this has changed significantly last year because last year, uh, for the first time, Russia has cut It's it's pension age. It's raised the retirement age. Um, It's 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 reducing the overall payments that pensioners will receive. And as you can imagine uh, from what you know about the American Social Security system, any attempts to raise retirement age is immensely unpopular. And there were some small protests here and there, uh, but it looks like Putin has been able uh, finally to increase the uh, increase the retirement age. Uh, We'll see if there's sustained effect on his popularity thus far. It's it's too early to tell whether people will actually complain. But the decision over the past 20 years to spend so much on pensions has led to a interesting shift in how Russia's government spends its on its social programs. Russia has invested very heavily in old people, spending a lot on pensions, and at the same time to fund this it's cut spending on health and education, which are in my view things that Russia needs even more than pension spending. Russian pensions are quite low by international standards, but Russian health and education spending is uh, even even lower and Russia would benefit more from investing in its population. Uh, and investing in a more productive workforce. But Russia hasn't done that because no one in Russia almost ever protests or complains about low education spending or low health spending. Indeed, there's been declines by some metrics in health and education spending over the past 20 years with no negative political effects for the Russian government. You can see Russia is around uh, Turkey in terms of the uh, share of uh, government spending on, on its health sector, and the education data looks somewhat similar. And the pension reform that Putin pushed through last year or the pension cuts are, are risky in this sense because they threaten the support of the voting base that has stood by him and the popular support that has been with him since he came to power in 2000. So this is something we'll have to track and see how it develops, what effects it has on uh, Russian support for Putin. And all of this takes place, as I mentioned, among uh, a context of Russia trusting the market a lot more than the Soviet Union did. And this is a key background point that I think is absolutely crucial. Unlike in the past, uh, Russia today has – here's the Moscow Stock Exchange, for an example. Uh, Russia has the institutions of a functioning capitalist society. It might have corruption, absolutely does. It might have property rights that are only uh, sporadically defended. But nonetheless, uh, in most sectors of the economy, businesses run along lines that wouldn't be that dissimilar to how uh, Western businesses are run. It's only in a couple sectors, finance, energy, chief among them, where in fact the political questions are playing the dominant role uh, in in setting the agenda. Now, this picture of stability that uh, I've sketched out of the past 20 years of Russian economic policy, I think is coming under increasing question, um, in part because of Uh, increasing demand in the United States for even more sanctions. Now, I sketched out a picture of how, over the past five years, Russia has withstood uh, pretty tough economic shocks coming from the United States and Europe. Um, But as calls grow in the United States, in particular to escalate sanctions, um, they they could uh, approach the point where Russia uh, begins to face uh, problems in in its economic management. Now, in order for sanctions to really have an effect on Russia uh, beyond what the first round of sanctions did, they'd have to be quite tough. But in fact, Congress is uh, is discussing, especially the last Congress discussed, didn't act on, but did discuss uh, some very significant sanctions that would uh, impose real cost on uh, Russia's government. Um, there's already been a pattern of escalating sanctions. If you look at the differences between the sanctions that were implemented in 2014 versus the sanctions last year, uh, sanctions have shifted away from the state-owned sector of the economy towards private firms. Uh, Just a couple weeks ago, uh, the Treasury Department cut a deal with uh, a number of firms owned by Oleg Deripaska – a very well-known Russian oligarch, to force him to change the ownership structure of his firm. And if he didn't do that deal, they would have put those firms basically out of business. So that's a very intrusive uh, type of sanction. And if, if Congress or the Treasury decide to impose similar sanctions on other Russian private firms, that would have a drastic effect on Russia's economy. But at the same time, the U.S. Treasury is also discussing the imposition, and Congress is discussing, uh, discussing this as well, of sanctions on Russian sovereign debt which has not been sanctioned before. And there's, I think, a reasonable chance this year that the, uh, the U.S. Congress will mandate the imposition of sanctions on Russian sovereign debt, prohibiting Russia from issuing government debt in Western capital markets. And the U.S. Treasury has come out in opposition to this uh, on the grounds that it would negatively affect Western financial markets, that's probably overblown, and it seems like Congress is not buying that argument. If you watch the Senate Banking Committee a discussion of that in the last Congress, it seems like there's a fair amount of support in Congress, actually, for moving towards sovereign sanctions, which would have a substantial effect on Russia, not only because Russia could no longer issue government debt. Russia actually has a very low government debt burden compared to many of its peers. The real effect would be the knock-on or secondary effects on Russian firms, because almost every other Russian firm uh, benefits from at least an implicit uh, sense that it will be backstopped by the Russian government if things go bad. And if suddenly the Russian government can't issue any new debt, if its balance sheet is constricted by U.S. sanctions, suddenly that implicit guarantee that Russian firms get would no longer be credible because Russia wouldn't have a way of funding it. And so many other Russian firms would be affected by sovereign sanctions, even though, per the law, they wouldn't actually be Hit by them. And if you look at the money that Russian firms have to repay over the coming decades, it's billions of dollars a year that need to be refinanced by Russian firms, by banks, by energy firms, by commodity firms. Some of these firms are already under sanction, but many are not. Um, but, to the extent that sovereign sanctions would would increase the price or restrict their ability to refinance their debt, it could cause substantial problems for Russian firms and force the Russian government to undertake yet another round of bailouts uh, at a time when it's uh, becoming increasingly i think difficult uh, to do so. But all of this debate, I think uh, comes amid a background of of uncertainty about how the Russian populace will respond to. This. The Russian populace thus far, even though their incomes have declined over the past five years, when they think about economic policy under Putin, thus far they've focused only on the first 10 years, which is a period of tremendous income growth. And the past couple of years have been seen by most Russians as a, an aberration, a short-term shock. It's the fault of the West because of sanctions. It's the fault of the global oil market. But the question is, how long does it last? How long are Russians willing to overlook the period of declining incomes and credit Putin for the first 10 years of his time in power? At what point do they start looking at charts like this that show Russian real uh, real incomes declining in just as many years as they've increased? And when Russians start associating Putin with charts like this, the ideas of stagnation or increasing impoverishment, that's when the political coalition that has sustained him becomes more difficult to manage and the pillars of Putinomics that have made possible his expansive foreign policy and his uh, unchanging domestic politics over the past two years becomes much more questionable. And so when I think about the question of when will economic policy begin to affect Russian foreign policy or begin to affect Russian domestic politics, this is the key question. When do Russians stop crediting Putin for their income growth in the 2000s and start blaming him for their increasing impoverishment over the past five years? So I'll stop there with that question still on the table and be happy to answer any uh, questions that you have.
0: Great. Thank you very much, Dr. Miller. We have, uh, I think, about 20 or so minutes uh, for Q&A. Uh, I'm going to be selfish and take the moderator's prerogative for the first question. Uh, we will then will have a microphone going around. Yes, we will have a microphone going around. And uh, I'll, uh, I'll field some questions after Dr. Miller answers answers mine. Uh, as always, my reminder, please phrase your question in the form of a question, not an address to the audience. So, But I'm going to go first on this. Uh, in In one way, the story that you've told about Russia and U.S. and Western sanctions on Russia reminds me of a lot of sanctions efforts that we've made against other countries at other times, that it's very easy to impose sanctions. It's very hard to prevent the sanction regime from transferring the effects of the sanctions away from regime elites and regime interests and on to the general public. Uh, you, know, you can sanction North Korea, but at the end of the day, the North Korean regime remains. The North Korean people end up bearing a significant share of U.S. sanctions, for example. Uh, is this, this is partly an inherent problem, I'm sure, with sanctions. Uh, is there a way to, ta- to target U.S. sanctions, apart from the sovereign debt question, that would more effectively affect Russian elites and limit their ability to transfer the effects of those sanctions onto the general Russian populace?
1: That's a really important question, and I, I think it gets back to the, the this broader debate about when do Russians start blaming the government for economic problems? Because what we've seen thus far is – is when individual oligarchs, for example, or individual members of the elite get sanctioned, there are some downsides. They can't go to London anymore. Uh, Business becomes harder. Um, But their economic costs thus far, insofar as we can tell, and it's obviously very difficult to tell in some cases, but have been reimbursed in some ways by the Russian government. And ultimately, that means by the Russian taxpayer. Uh, And so so thus far, when you look at attempts to sanction individuals, So far, I would argue that the bill has been footed in the end by average Russians. Um, Now, there will come a point at some time, at some level of sanctions, where average Russians will say, uh, hey, to the Kremlin, this is no longer a a good deal for us. We'd rather not pay the cost of these sanctions ourselves. That hasn't come yet. Um, It's remarkable in the Russian discourse, which is, of course, very much shaped by the fact that the Kremlin controls all the TV stations, but nonetheless remarkable how anti-oligarch politics are not really a part of Russian discourse outside of a very small sliver of the Russian opposition media. Um, You know, I joked about there not being a a Russian Bernie Sanders, but it is kind of a puzzle, actually, Uh, why in a country that's so dominated by oligarchs, uh, that has seen such massive corporate bailouts, why you might expect there there would be a a left-wing movement that would critique the government for bailing out the business. That hasn't happened uh, almost at all. Uh, And until that does happen, there's going to be no downside for the Russian government to begin uh, or to continue bailing out its friends um, because it wants to keep the elite on board. It's afraid of elite defections. And so long as the Russian taxpayer gives the government more or less a blank check to issue bailouts like this, it's in the Kremlin's interest to keep bailing out. Uh, and, and so that's why I continue to look at the, the question of when will the population begin complaining. Because until that happens, uh, Russia's got all the money it needs to bail out uh, basically whomever it wants at home.
0: Well, on that encouraging lo- note, uh, let's, let's turn to the audience uh, for, uh, for a question. Uh, let's take the gentleman down here in the front. I saw him before you do. If you could uh, mention your name and your organizational affiliation, if you have one. Hi, my name is Joe Kassais. I'm an intern here at the Heritage Foundation. My question to you is about if you believe that sanctions could in a way perpetuate the current system, the way that it's going, because it uh, allows Putin and the oligarchs to use us as a scapegoat, uh, much as how Brezhnev did, how the Soviets did in the 70s that they just perpetuate this idea of a besieged fortress. And the economic boom, that's great. That's because of us. All economic downturns are because of these sanctions, and maybe that's why there's no organization against. Um, Do you think that there's a way that we can dispel that or try to push the blame firmly on them rather than allow them to put the blame on us?
1: You're definitely right that the Russian government makes the argument that uh, many of its economic problems are caused by sanctions – um, you know, I don't think sanctions are the only uh, grievance Russia can mobilize. So the Kremlin can mobilize to blame the West. It has a whole series of uh, of, of points on which it regularly uh, blames the West for its own problems. Um, so even if sanctions disappeared, I think you'd still have the dynamic of, of Russia blaming, uh, or at least kind of the, the government-controlled media blaming its problems um, on the West. Um, but on the on the question of are there ways the U.S. could better target its sanctions or better describe what it's doing uh, so that the population uh, was less respe- uh, less receptive to that critique. You know, To be honest, I, th- I think uh, America's track record in trying to shape Russian domestic politics uh, has been far from um, super successful, not only in the <laughs> past couple of years, but in the past hundred years. Um, I, I, at the Fletcher School, I teach a class on history of Russian relations with the West, and we just did a, a session on uh, the Russian Revolution and President Wilson's efforts to shape the Russian Revolution, which also didn't turn out very well. Um, So I would be relatively pessimistic about our ability to do that, not only because it's very hard to shape politics in general, but also because the Kremlin controls the TV stations. They've been very effective at shaping the narrative at home, Uh, and it's, I think, difficult to imagine um, a U.S. strategy being so well-crafted and so well-resourced that it was able to substantially uh, push against that narrative.
0: Uh, Let's take the gentleman on the aisle right here, and then we'll move along the road. All right.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Joe Haberman. I'm an intern with CSIS. Uh, first of all, thank you for your talk. Um, you spoke a little about the various forces on the Russian budget, uh, such as oil prices, as well as some of the social effects on spending, like pensions, public health. I wondered if you could talk a little about another dynamic of the budget, um, namely taxation, and what the tax regime uh, can reflect on sort of the state's efficacy and transparency, as well as the social contract between the people and the government? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, one of the first things Putin did when he came to power is he implemented a, a flat income tax of 13%, um, which is a very low rate. Uh, and it's something the Russian government was at the time extraordinarily proud of and remains extraordinarily proud of. Uh, and I think this tells you a lot about the structure of Russian politics, um, which is that unlike the communist period when there was a, a relatively strong, uh, at least rhetorical, push uh, – from the left. Now it's it's the opposite in Russia, that uh, both in economic and in in political identity terms, the push is is from the right to keep taxes low. And indeed, if you look at Russia's tax burden as a share of GDP, it's actually uh, relatively low compared to many peers. Um, So I think this this does reflect Russian domestic politics. There's no labor movement, for example, pushing for higher taxes, which you see in many European countries. Um, And in fact, the Russian government actually raised taxes this year. One of the reasons that one of the reasons that uh, that income fell this year is because the Russian government raised taxes. The way it did it was quite interesting. It raised consumption taxes rather than income taxes, which have a, a regressive effect in general. Uh, which is just representative of who's got the power in Russia. You know, it's it's not the the average guy in the street. It's uh, it's the the elite class who don't worry that much about the value added tax, but I don't want to pay higher income taxes. So I, I, this is again a great representation of the distribution of political power in Russia, which is been relatively set since 1991 over the course of independent Russia. And I would suspect, unless we see evidence to the contrary, that it, it remains that way for the foreseeable future. There just aren't any sort of uh, social movements of the type that would push for higher taxes uh, on on the oligarchs, for example, uh, existing right now. You could imagine them, but there's no evidence of them. Uh Hello. My name is Aaron Kennett. Uh, I. Thank you for for your lecture, for your comments. Uh, I was wondering if you could offer a little bit more commentary uh, on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, and how that relates to kind of uh, this dynamic of the Russian economy and uh, sanctions. Uh, I know that's not necessarily within the scope of what you talked about, but I would appreciate that. Sure. Yeah. Happy to discuss Nord Stream 2. So this this is a pipeline, for those of you who aren't familiar, that uh, is currently being built. It'll go from Russia uh, directly to Germany. Um, So in other words, not the land route but via the sea route, so not passing through Poland. And it's controversial for a number of reasons. Uh, one is because it's designed uh, to allow Russia to ship a lot less gas through an existing pipeline that uh, passes through Ukraine, uh, which is problematic both because Ukraine gets transit revenue from that it, – it, Russians pay a tariff – and because um, there are fears that it might allow Russia to cut off gas to Ukraine but keep supplying the rest of Europe, thereby leaving Ukraine hanging outside of Europe's energy sphere. Uh, these are, are, I think, real concerns, both of them. Um, you know, the question right now is, is what sort of assurances can Germany give and credibly give to Ukraine and other European countries that are affected by this? And that's where the debate inside of Europe is happening right now. Um, so for, for Russia, it's not really an economic question. Actually, the the sums involved are relatively small, and no matter how you cut it, Russia will be delivering a lot of gas to Europe. No way around that. Um, the question is really, how does Europe structure the transaction so that the Ukrainians aren't thrown under the bus in the process? And that Europe's energy security uh, isn't isn't uh, threatened in the process. And I think there are ways you could have Nord Stream Plus uh, satisfy those two other criteria, but they would require some compromises from Germany, which we haven't seen yet. Uh, so, so that's where the discussion, I think, needs to lead.
0: I have to say that I remember there there used to be an American politician who thought there might be some strategic liabilities about building pipelines to deliver Russian or maybe it was Soviet energy to the West. What, what was his?
1: You recall what his name was? But it, it's 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 you know it's funny because the debate is exactly the same as the debate in the 1980s. Uh, Reagan levied sanctions on a on a pipeline. You know, in, in people talk about returning to the Cold War, and in some ways, I think that's a bit reductive. But there are some interesting similarities in terms of the debates we're having with Russia and with Europe uh, today and debates we had a generation ago. Great. Uh, uh, the gentleman right
0: here in the. In
1: Hi, uh, my name is Paul Schwa. I'm a research assistant here at the Heritage Foundation. Um, I was just curious about if if you have any thoughts or uh, commentary, I guess you could offer on what the broader, maybe more broader objectives of Putinomics are. And uh, not just, you know, you suggested economic durability, uh, rewarding elites, but does that play into any of the broader objectives we see in the Putin regime? Ted uh, opened with a, with a mention of the, um, the interpretation of Russia that you often hear, which is that Russia's elite is only in it for the money, that they're just trying to you know, make, make a buck or make a billion off of the Russian state, and that that's their primary goal. Um, you know, I don't think the evidence backs up this thesis. Not that the Russian elite is not interested in money. Certainly they are, but if you were solely interested in mon- money, it's hard to explain why you would have annexed Crimea, an economically irrelevant territory, or why you would have started a war uh, with Ukraine, which was also uh, not an economically wise move. Um, So it certainly seems that there are other factors as well as monetary ones in the Kremlin's decision-making, and not only in Putin's, but in the Russian elites more generally. And I think you have to uh, uh, put Russia's actions today in the context of Russian foreign policy over the past several hundred years, I would argue, not that it's been unchanging, but that there have been certain desires for Russia to be treated like a great power and to uh, have that recognized as – Uh, have the kind of territory around Russia recognized as Russia's own sphere of influence. Uh, So those are certainly aims that Russia's elite have, Uh, not only Putin. I think it's fairly widespread. And Putinomics has been implemented in part to make that possible. Now, it's not working that well, I would argue. In fact, Russia's influence in its neighborhood is declining and has been in a relatively steady decline, I would say, since 1991, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, But nonetheless, it's intended to make possible the deployment of power in places like Ukraine – Georgia and elsewhere, uh, to arrest that decline, and to, to keep Russia's status in the region relatively strong.
0: Uh, will go to the gentleman over here and then the lady right. Behind. Hi. Uh, my name is Dimitri. Thank you very much. Very interesting presentation. I have a couple questions. I'll try to keep them as short as possible. My first one's about uh, – your comment about let the private sector work uh, in non-political sectors. I'm wondering if that's like a question of degree of certain sectors or political. And is that fluctuating at all with the sanctions? Does that, do the sanctions change anything? And uh, if you could talk a little bit about that. The other one um, is about does Russia have sources for foreign capital besides the West? So if we put in financial sanctions. And the last one is how does uh, Putin sell this non-funding of education and health? Does he transfer the blame to the local level, or how does he sell it? Thank you.
1: Great. Three important questions. I'll I'll take them in reverse order if I can. On the transferring blame, absolutely. Blame the local government. Uh, Blame the Russian bureaucracy. Say it was always bad. It's been hard to fix. Uh, And if you keep it out of the media, people don't think about it nearly as much. So It's never the case that on Russian TV you'll have uh, complaints about education spending next to a picture of Putin doesn't happen. Uh, So the the blame is diverted. Um, On the question of foreign capital and other sources of foreign investment, Russia has tried pretty aggressively to turn towards especially Asian sources of investment, China, but also Japan, uh, other places, with relatively limited success. Um, The the Chinese, Indian, Japanese firms have invested in certain Russian energy projects. Um, Russia's cautious about that, in part because it doesn't want foreign companies controlling its energy projects, but it has allowed more uh, Asian investment. Um, But at the end of the day, almost all major companies, even Chinese companies, uh, are going to follow US sanctions because they're afraid of repercussions. And at the end of the day, Russia's still not a great place to do business. That's a real limit uh, to foreign investment. So outside of the energy sector, uh, despite a whole lot of talk about foreign investment, in in reality, there's been uh, relatively low levels and not much growth over the past couple of years. And when you talk to Chinese or Japanese business people, That's what they'll say. They'll say, we're happy to invest in natural gas at the right price, but otherwise, what's the attractive investment proposition? And Russia's taken no steps over the past couple of years to improve its investment proposition. So it's trying to attract foreign capital, but in reality, it's not doing much on that front. And on the the question about uh, different sectors and the extent to which they're politicized, absolutely, there is a spectrum. And I think the larger a business gets, the more uh, it has to engage with political actors, which is something that happens not only in Russia. so I would certainly agree with that. And certain regions as well are more or less conducive to business. You do have a spectrum and a variation between different regions. Sanctions, have no sanctions has had some effect. Um, for example, after sanctions were imposed, Russia's government launched a strategy for import substitution to produce more stuff at home. Um, has, has that been economically effective? Largely no, I would say. Outside of a couple of specific sectors, agriculture has been one um, – you've had a bit more support for agriculture, but I don't think there's been a big change over the past couple of years.
0: Uh, There are many areas of cooperation, like space and other ones, and uh, since the Cold War, um, what do you think the really objective reasons for both countries not to take steps to work together, the two major nuclear superpowers? um, What is... As we understood the Cold War, the reasons were understandable. But now, what are the major reasons from both countries that they're not working together?
1: There are still some places the two countries work together, and space is the one that's often cited. Um, To me, it seems when you're citing space cooperation, which is a scientific endeavor, largely in some ways that's evidence of how bad the relationship really is, that there's uh, almost no cooperation on any other issue. Um, Even educational exchanges, which is an area that I work as a professor, have been cut back. Um, which is quite striking, I think, is to signal as to where we actually are, as to why this happened. You know, I think it's impossible to deny that the two countries have very, very different worldviews uh, in terms of what they want in their foreign policies. And when you look at specific issues, Ukraine, Syria, um, you know, there are just huge divergences between what the Russian elite wants and what the United States wants. And until those are either resolved by compromise, which looks unlikely, or by One side stepping back and giving the other side more of what it wants. It's hard to see the relationship improving significantly in the
0: coming years. Any other questions from the audience? Oh, I'm being blocked by the podium. Thank you. Okay. Okay, David Wu, former member of Congress. Uh, I can't travel anywhere in China without uh, hearing about the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, Is there any likelihood that uh, Russia and China would uh, uh, cooperate in this project?
1: That's a a very uh, important question for Russia, and it poses a dilemma, because on the one hand, Russia wants to play up its cooperation with China. On the other hand, one of the key regions for Belt and Road development is Central Asia, which Russia sees as its own backyard, countries like Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, et uh, and so at the diplomatic level, there is a, a formal agreement between Belt and Road and Russia's Eurasian Economic Union, uh, which includes many of the countries of Central Asia, whereby they formally work together. In reality, the substance of this is limited, um, in part because uh, Russia – wants to try to keep uh, as much influence as it has in Central Asia and is a little bit wary of, of China's growing investment, um, but more than that because the types of projects that China is looking to invest in are the types of things that Russia has not invested in over the past 50 years and is not investing in right now. So There's examples of a, a Chinese-Kazakhstan-Russian highway designed to link Western China all the way through Kazakhstan to Russia. Uh, the Chinese have built their portion, the Kazakhstan government has built its portion, and Russia is still – trying to find the money uh, to build its portion. Um, so I think when you look at the actual uh, steps on the ground, they've been really surprisingly limited, limited both by the geopolitics, but also by the, the realities of in, investing in Russia and, and building
0: infrastructure projects. I think uh, we have time for one more question, which I'm going Please. to ask, uh, and, then, and then I think we can wrap it up, unless there are other questions from the audience. Uh, so much of what you said seems like a, a replay with variations of some of the difficulties ended up bringing the USSR down. Uh, the USSR tried to control Eastern Europe. That proved to be an unwise move politically. Uh, the Soviet U- uh, Russia is now trying, at least in my eyes, to exercise a degree of political control, but without a whole lot of geographical control, uh, except, of course, in portions of Ukraine uh, and, and Georgia outside of Eastern Europe. Economically, uh, the Soviet Union tried to control everything. Uh, just as geopolitically, Russia has scaled back under Putin, economically they've scaled back under Putin to the commanding heights. So both geographically and economically, you have sort of a Cold War strategy Mark to um, with changes in the amount of control you're trying to have in certain areas, preserving the substance, but eliminating the kinds of control that prove to be excessive or unwise or overly is that a fair characterization? And if so, does this represent Russian and, particular, Putin learning from the Cold War directly, or is it sort of a, an obvious deduction from the circumstances?
1: Yeah, I, I think you're right to notice a, a, a distinction between Soviet era practice and contemporary practice. You know, I would say it's less about learning and more about the realities that Russian resources today are a lot more limited than Soviet resources were. Uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. In the 1980s, the Soviet Union spent probably around 15 percent of its uh, economy on the military, which is shockingly high. Today, Russia spends four-ish percent on its military, so a uh, you know a substantial amount less than that. Uh, the Soviet Union had twice as many people in it because it controlled Ukraine and Kazakhstan. Uh, Russia is is much smaller. So I think the the, the the difference we see between Russian strategy today versus the 1980s uh, is is not a strategy not a, uh, a result of learning, but a result of real differences um, in resources. But in, in other ways, I like the 1980s analogy because I think there's no doubt that what we're seeing is a repetition of the Soviet Union under Brezhnev. Uh, the question I think for us as analysts is, you know, Brezhnev was in power for a long time, and are we in Brezhnev year one with another decade or even 15 years of stagnation ahead of us? Or are are we in late Brezhnev with a Gorbachev or something uh, different, at least, around the corner? Uh, And and my sense is that we're still in in early Brezhnev and we've got a lot of stagnation and a lot of U.S.-Russia tension ahead of us before uh, things start to look much different.
0: In closing, I'm reminded of of a British political thinker, I believe it was, was it Smith, uh, who said there's a lot of ruin in the state. Um, and there may be a lot of ruin in Russia as well. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining us here at the Heritage Foundation to hear this wonderful presentation and Q and A session from Dr. Miller. Uh, join me again, please, in thanking him. Thank you. Thank you. That's the job. That's a great
1: conversation. Excellent. Yeah.